Well, good morning. It's wonderful to be with you today and already to have such uh, great music and wonderful singing. Wow, it's great to hear you all sing. And we're looking at that passage we just had read out for us a moment ago so well. Thank you for that. Now, if we took a survey uh, this weekend and uh, we asked people what their favorite Christmas story or movie might be, my guess is we would find a wide range of opinions. For some, it might be the classic movie, It's a Wonderful Life. It ends with James Stewart surrounded by carol singing comrades and uh, no man is a failure who has friends. For others, though, this year it might well be the new Star Wars movie. Time to come out during the holidays. We grew up watching The Wizard of Oz or a James Bond movie uh, during the Christmas season uh, uh, for reasons I cannot quite remember but seemed like a, a good idea at the time. Now for many, a favorite movie at this season is actually the iconoclastic yet classic original Die Hard movie. Hardly Christmassy, you might say. And you'd be right, certainly when judged by the standards of a typical Christmas pageant. But when we come to the gospel accounts themselves, the grit of a die-hard-like tone is hardly misplaced. Matthew's gospel tells us of the fury of King Herod killing innocent babies in a futile attempt to protect his throne against the coming baby King Jesus. Luke sets his gospel in the context of a massive refugee disturbance of a worldwide census ordered by the imperial power. And Mark's gospel? Well, it begins in the wilderness. John the Baptist in the desert of Judea, the people of the surrounding countryside journeying to that desert to hear from a wilderness prophet. Such a massive popular movement was it that Mark says that it was as if all the country and all Jerusalem went to the desert to hear John, meaning that so many went that John could be said to have, as it were, temporarily won the popular vote of the whole country, or as we in Chicagoland might put it, after a Black Hawks hockey team wins the Stanley Cup, that the whole of Chicago celebrates Everyone went to hear John, to the desert, to the wilderness. Now, when I talk about wilderness and all this theme, I I don't want you to think that I mean a wilderness experience in a trivial, oh, I feel like I am in a desert at the moment, all sort of dry, and I really need a side hug, you know. No, I'm referring to something powerfully biblical, Drawing on Puritan literature, as well as the civil rights movement in mid-century America, and something that if we rediscover in our world today, in your own life this weekend, then the dark days, the loved ones not here this year, the need to find a job, or the desire to find a wife or a husband, the trial of opposition will all now make sense. You see, Mark's gospel was probably written by one John Mark. 
a companion of the early apostles, an assistant, he is called in the book of Acts, a technical word meaning he was a specially designated official in charge of the early manuscripts of the Christian movement. The same title, assistant, being used of the official to whom Jesus handed the scroll of the scriptures when he first preached in the synagogue. Mark, like a secretary or an editor, wrote down the Apostle Peter's vibrant style of preaching. Pithy, brief, punchy to the point, short sentences, words like immediately or at once, scattered throughout Mark's gospel. What's more, it may well have been, some scholars think, uh, actually written in the shadow of cruel Nero's persecution of Christians in Rome, including the martyrdom of Peter. For instance, as one little example, this is the only gospel that includes the phrase, you shall be salted by fire, which actually would have been an encouraging word for Christians, falsely blamed for the fire at Rome and burnt at the time as a consequence. Even if you think Mark was written a little earlier, AD 50 perhaps, rather than the AD 60s, still Mark begins with wilderness as the backstory to good news. Here at the beginning, starting as no other gospel does, without a birth narrative, but a radical prophet in the middle of a desert. And Mark's gospel as a whole is structured in the same kind of way, around a hinge, right in the center of the gospel, where Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ and then is rebuked for not realizing that that Christ must be crucified and is told that all those who follow Jesus must take up their cross and follow him too, a calling that was literally fulfilled by those Roman Christians under Nero. And so the gospel begins with good news in verse 1. Glad tidings, we may call it. Not just a seasonal Christmas play on words, but a translation of the word gospel in the context of the Roman use of it as an evangel, announcing the birth of the Caesar as glad tidings, as well as the glad tidings of the Old Testament scriptures predicting the coming future messianic king. And these glad tidings here in Mark are specifically about the Son of God, an Old Testament promise of the Messiah exposing the wrong use of that same phrase, Son of God, put on inscriptions by the Roman Empire with relation to their Caesar. Announced right at the beginning of the Gospel account. And finally, Jesus acclaimed as Son of God, truly, by, appropriately enough, a Roman centurion at the foot of the cross, saying, surely Jesus is Son of God. And so this weekend, counterintuitively, surprisingly, to receive the awesome glad tidings of Christ at Christmas, Mark is telling us the gospel message begins in the wilderness. That's the theme this weekend. The gospel message begins in the wilderness. First, we will consider the wilderness, and then second, the message. First, the wilderness. Well, Mark tells us that it was all long ago predicted, uh, verse 2. Behold, I will send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness... 
Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And then in fulfillment, it came to pass, as they say in Christmas pageants. Verse 4, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And this John has a particularly wilderness-like appearance. Uh, Verse 6, now John was clothed with camel's hair. And wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. It must have been surprising for them to come across a preacher sitting up camp in a desert and dressed so strangely. You know, John is an antidote to an inauthentic, trying too hard dress sense of some preachers today. John did not wear skinny jeans and have tattoos. Fine as that is, if you want. John was not a fashionable foodie either. He ate locusts with honey, not gourmet meals in the best Jerusalem restaurants. This guy was evidently not trying to be attractional. That meant altering the message to get people to feel comfortable. No, he was deliberately making them uncomfortable. There's no air conditioning in that desert. Now, of course, a wilderness can have a sparse, attractional, if you like, beauty. The stretching sand broken only by tumbleweed or a cactus in America, or in the Arabian desert by nothing but more sand, or in the desert in the region of Judea, a wilderness which was, one contemporary author put it, desert and rock, desert and barren. Or as one French author put it, I've always loved the desert. One sits down on a desert sand dune, sees nothing, hears nothing, yet through the silence something throbs and gleams. But that something was for Israel someone. The story of the wilderness was Israel's story. They had been rescued from Egypt, crossed the Red Sea by the hand of God, and then wandered in the desert before entering the promised land. And so the wilderness to them was a motif in their national story, like the Mayflower is for Americans. In fact, you know, the early Puritans deliberately used this wilderness motif to understand their own experience. They had been called out of Egypt, which for them, I'm afraid, was England, Into the wilderness. Their crossing of the Atlantic was like the crossing of the Red Sea before arriving in the new land, the land of wilderness, which they had to redeem. So the most biblically literate people in the history of the church, the Puritans, saw echoes in their story of this great story, not an allegory, but a type that drew them to Christ. You see, for Israel... God's people in this desert, having been called by God's grace, they were trained by God to follow his word, to be prepared to enter the promised land. And now John was calling them back to the desert. Why? What does it mean, they must have asked. John, self-consciously choosing clothes and adopting a style of radical eating and living that would have reminded them of the great prophet Elijah, dressed like Elijah, in the same way that someone might deliberately dress up like 
George Washington and go to D.C. to clear up the mess. Or dress up like uh, John Calvin and go to Calvin College and speak a choice word or two. Or dress up like D.L. Moody, not me, and go down to Moody Bible College and say something about the original vision of Moody. So John, in fulfillment of Scripture, dressed like the great prophet Elijah, was announcing an end of the hunger for the Word of God, the silence of the prophets that had scandalously stretched for hundreds of years, suddenly pierced by a voice in the desert, prophetically announcing a new rescue from sin. A new opportunity to redeem the wilderness, to enter the promised land. In fact, the fulfillment of all that wilderness story, what the wilderness story was really always about, was on the cusp of happening right there, right then. You see, that's why Mark introduces John with a pastiche of quotations uh, from the book of Exodus, Spliced into the prophet of prophet Micah, concluding with Isaiah, with whom he begins the quotation, as he was often thought to be the greatest Old Testament prophet. The greatest, that is, until John. Representing the whole prophetic tradition, garbed as a prophet in the land of the prophets, calling God's people back to the wilderness to cross the Red Sea again, as it were, through the waters of baptism. A type of that first baptism when they were rescued from Egypt, so that they might be prepared to receive the baptism of the Spirit. Isaiah describing how God's people were led in the wilderness by God's Spirit. And now, in fulfillment, the gospel of the kingdom of God in the person of Jesus, the Messiah. Now, of course, a story of a wilderness does have a sparse beauty. And it echoes in the experience of every single one of us in our wilderness moments. We ask why. Why did this happen to me? Why is this happening to our country or to our society? Why did this person die or that person succeed and make money when he is so evidently Herod-like in his kingly fascist evil with political leaders who perhaps disappoint us? We wonder where God is in our wilderness. But John is saying something more than merely offering comfort and emotional hugs when the going gets tough, important as community at its best is. John is saying that God is the God who speaks to us in the wilderness, in the quiet, in the expanse of nothing. We finally are separated from our social media, from our cell phones, from the incessant buzzing of our noise-polluted world to hear nothing but the buzz of silence ringing in our ears like a message from the beyond. And there suddenly comes a voice, a voice of one crying in the wilderness, the glad tidings of Christ and an awesome Christmas spoken by a radical, hair-shirted prophet. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. 
Now, I've had many conversations with people who have sensed that they are in a wilderness. Perhaps they have doubts, or they're experiencing relational friction with a spouse or a child, or they're in some kind of emotional or physical pain. Often they have good reason to feel that they are in a wilderness, because in a certain sense, they are. They look around and they cannot see the darling buds of May, as the poet put it, or any plant in bloom. This is barrenness, fruitlessness. They feel despair that things will get ever any better. And Christmas doesn't help. They hear the song, Peace on Earth, and they resonate more with the U2 rendition of that. Peace on Earth, where's that? What I have found is that almost all of us, when we are in the wilderness, have a single solitary tendency, the same tendency that Israel faced. We tend to want to give up, to go back to Egypt. The food was better in Egypt. Sure, we were slaves, but at least there was something to eat. I've always enjoyed how Eugene Peterson counters this common human tendency with his well-known call to perseverance. A long obedience, he says, in the same direction. Most people give up too soon. There's something about life, the seed that is planted, the business that has begun, the ministry that is a startup that just requires time and care. And digging it up by its roots does no one any good. But if I found there is a single solitary tendency to give up too soon, I've also found the way to avoid it is not simply to urge patience if that patience is not connected to John's message. To come out of the wilderness, we need to not just appreciate the beauty of the desert, its silence. We need to understand its meaning, hear its message, follow the way out to the glad tidings of Christ and an awesome Christmas. So this weekend, the theme is the gospel message begins in the wilderness. And we have considered first the wilderness, and now let us consider second, the message. Well, the message of the wilderness is summarized by Mark in his abbreviated description of John's preaching. John, verse 7, preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This he, of course, is Jesus, who at his own baptism, Mark will tell us in a moment, heard the voice from heaven saying, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Now, what does John's message mean? Well, John's message is first, the Bible story is actually coherent. John is saying that the whole thing hangs together on Jesus. You know, usually at Christmas, some magazine or other, Newsweek or something, will put out some description of the latest biblical critic. Does the Bible actually hang together? John is saying that the structure of the big story of the Bible is that after me comes he who is mightier than I. Now, each part of that statement is carefully chosen. To come after someone at the time was to be their disciple. You were following them, not just literally 
walking down along the road behind them, but also by learning from their teachings. Similarly, Jesus will call his disciples to follow him or come after him. John knew that his task was to prepare the way for Jesus, and therefore, in a certain sense, Jesus was following after John. But the one who is following after John is mightier than John. He is the one by comparison with whom even John, the great prophet, is puny and insignificant. You know, when I spoke to Christians who were struggling with their faith at Yale University, they come across critics of the Bible, two patterns emerged. First, those who gave up on believing the Bible were, I'm afraid, not as intelligent as those who kept their faith. That is, because to keep your faith in that environment, you have to not only know what you believe, not only know why you believe it, but also be able to defend what you believe against contrary views. The second pattern I discovered was that those who struggled with their faith in graduate school at Yale tended to be those who did not focus on Jesus himself. If even John, if even Isaiah, if even the wilderness journey of Israel is really leading us to Jesus, who is mightier by far, then would you, who doubt because you have read this or that criticism of the Bible, take a moment to stop thinking about whatever is being said on whatever internet forum and think about Jesus himself. He is the one on whom all the Bible hangs together. If in doubt, apply the lodestone of Jesus who will bring together all the apparently disparate parts of the Bible. Draw them in like a magnet and make sense of every single one. Not only does this wilderness message mean the Bible story actually works, it also means that if you are not yet a Christian, it is time to become one, to repent and be baptized, to follow Jesus into the waters of baptism, to receive the baptism of the Spirit and become born of the Spirit. This is the gospel message that begins in the wilderness. What prevents you from turning to Jesus today? What prevents you from asking to be baptized? The person who finally persuaded me to be baptized was a secret believer from the Iranian people. I got to know him as we had done outreach together among his fellow Iranians for a week. And afterwards we were sharing our stories of faith and our personal lives and a sweet Time of drinking tea, sitting cross-legged on the floor of the Iranian dormitory where we were staying. He told me that he had decided that he was going to be baptized. And I knew that for him, in the context in which he was living, that could well be a death sentence. He was going into the wilderness to be baptized and follow Jesus publicly. And in the profound silence after that moment, he asked me when I was baptized. 
I was so ashamed by my inadequate answer that when I flew home, I was baptized myself within a week. Sometimes, you know, it takes the message of the wilderness, a John the Baptist-type preacher, to get you to take the first step of faith. And sometimes it takes that to get you to be baptized. But not only is the message of the wilderness that the Bible does actually fit together, not only that we should follow Jesus and be baptized, it is also that there is work for us to do. For the Puritans, they viewed America itself as, in a sense, a wilderness. They believed they had, to quote a a well-known 17th century Puritan sermon, they had an errand into the wilderness to build churches, to establish a society, to grow the kingdom, to educate their children, to conduct their lives. So they were pushing back the darkness and establishing a city on a hill as an example to the nations. I'm not claiming that they always got it right. I know enough about them to know they did not. But sometimes it is true that our ministry, our main work, like John's, is not to flee the wilderness, but to turn that wilderness into a garden. Too many times we flee the hard places and decide that our calling is conveniently enough to go where there is, quote-unquote, more fruit. Or the ground is softer. Or some such nicely phrased excuse. We look at a tough marriage and eagerly search the scriptures for a way out. Or a tough job and wonder whether that feeling inside of our knees can perhaps be interpreted as a nudge of the spirit. Go do something less demanding. But if Moses' great ministry was in the wilderness, and John's too, perhaps yours will be as well. Perhaps it is in the middle of that less than ideal marriage, or that sickness, or that depression, where you are actually having the biggest ministry, the biggest impact for Jesus of your entire life. Sometimes we need not flee the wilderness, but speak a message that will point others to Christ in their wilderness. The message of the wilderness is the Bible does actually fit together, for it all points to Christ, that we should follow Jesus ourselves and believe and be baptized, that there is work for us to do, and it is a message of hope in our suffering. The civil rights movement was very strong in their understanding of the redemptive power of wilderness suffering. It was uh, Martin Luther King who said in a great phrase, undeserved suffering is redemptive. To which I might only add, as long as that suffering is received with faith, not bitterness. We do not deliberately seek wilderness pain, but perhaps we, like the original readers of Mark's gospel, are facing opposition. It's a common enough phenomenon around the world today. 
Long have Christian preachers like me predicted that if the growth of relativistic tolerance continues unabashed, where the only unforgivable sin is to think that there are sins that must be forgiven, where everything may be tolerated except those who think that not everything should be tolerated, Christians who hold to the truth of the Bible are likely to face increasing pressure. May it not be so. But if it is, if one day we are salted with fire, like Mark's readers were in ancient times, remember this. John the Baptist's message in the wilderness made him the greatest human preacher ever. It is not always the man with the biggest pulpit or the fanciest business or the largest empire who has the biggest impact. Sometimes it is the prisoner for Christ who speaks a more powerful message than the orator. I've long thought Tolkien was wise beyond words when he made the wizard Gandalf say to Frodo, It is not for us to choose the times we live in. All we have to do is decide what to do with the time that is given to us. The final message of the wilderness is how to leave the wilderness. God's people wandered long in the desert, learning under God's shepherding to trust him and believe his word until they were ready to enter the promised land. And now, as John preached, the moment of their entry into the promised land spiritually by the baptism of the Spirit was upon them. It may be that you have wandered in the wilderness Not for undeserved suffering, but through deserved discipline. Would you now, this day, repent and put your trust in Christ that he might lead you out of the desert and into new life and joy and glad tidings of great joy with fellowship with Christ and Christ's people. For the gospel message begins in the wilderness. The wilderness where John the Baptist points us to Christ, the message that the Bible really does fit together, that we are to believe and be baptized, that we have work to do, that suffering can be redemptive when received aright, and that if we are being disciplined for our sin, to turn from that sin, to leave the wandering and enter the promised land. This is the story, the movie of your life where the wilderness leads to the gospel message of the glad tidings of an awesome Christmas. That movie, It's a Wonderful Life, is a, is a Christmas classic. It's George, isn't it, the main character? There he is, slogging away in a small town, seemingly going nowhere. His brother has gone off and is making a name for himself, but George is stuck at the bank 
with customers who annoy him, doing the faithful thing every day and wondering whether really it has any significance at all. And then there's a run on the bank. And all the hard work that he has done to build up the town goes right down the drain. He has nothing. No one will lend him any money. George is at the end of his rope. He's in the wilderness. Please, God, he says, I want to live again. He runs home. The bank examiner is waiting for him, along with the police. They're all there to arrest him. His wife Mary runs in. Soon after come all his friends with all the money they have raised. They didn't ask any questions. Mary just said, George is in trouble, and the whole town packed his living room with help. Savings in glass jars poured unceremonially on the table in front of him to save him. How about a song, someone says. (laughs) A child on the piano begins to thump out a tune. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. A gospel message that begins in the wilderness. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for John and his great message. We pray that we, like him, would point others to you, Jesus. We pray, Lord, that uh, we would find you in the wilderness as you reach out to us, hear your voice, and respond today with faith, with repentance, with uh, working hard for you, Jesus. A sense of encouragement as we hear the glad tidings of an awesome Christmas. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.